I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Through it before. And so um, last week I showed 
everybody this diagram and I said um, that, that there are some people for whom um, when they feel grateful it's more of a emotions and a personal thing. It's a feeling that overcomes them. For other people it may be still personal but it's more um, of an ethics thing like if you write me a thank you note, I'm going to write it back. There is, an, there is an expectation, and I have a reciprocal relationship with you. And sometimes that comes out in the way you think about God, too. And then some people have more of a emotions but public way of seeing it. So they feel most grateful when they're maybe sitting around a Thanksgiving table with their family, or they're at common table together, sitting around a table, and they can... They somehow feel this sense of gratitude around table sharing life together. And then um, other people, um, still other people, are in this public ethics category. And so it might come out in things like, um, like tithing. It might come out in being responsible for, um, for, for the poor. It might come out in serving. Those are the various um, ways that we see this. Um, and so I'm actually pulling up my sermon on another thing. This tablet's not working. So it's good. I have multiple options. So today, that's where we were last week. And so today we find ourselves in, um, with, we're going to zero in on this category, this area of, of feelings, this feelings. What if, what if gratitude is a feeling? And we said that gratitude could be many, many different things. Um, gratitude could be a feeling. It could, maybe it could be um, a practice. Some people think it's a practice. Some people think it's a social ob obligation. Um, and then other people may think it's, um, it's some kind of um, civic duty that we have. That if someone does something for us, we are to, to do it back for them. These are all the various ways that we think of gratitude. And so today, we're going to focus in on this um, feeling, gratitude as feeling, and some of this will, will, feel, will feel right for you. So growing up, I had a friend in school who attended um, a church, it was a Bible church. Um, now in our area, we have a Bible church, you might know of it as um, like McLean, you've heard of that, McLean Bible Church. In our area, it was called Grace Bible Church, but she attended a Bible church, um, and, and my family, I mean, I was going to a Pentecostal church at this time, and my family was very Methodist through and through, um, and during at our Thanksgiving table, they would call these people over at Grace Bible Church those fundamentalists. And I didn't, I, I didn't know any different though. They seemed like really, really nice people. And so the only label they seemed to label themselves by was Bible believing, and that felt good, right? That seems like something we should be Bible believing. And honestly, it seemed to me that the time they took to understand the Bible and and to grow in their spirituality. Um, sometimes it felt like they paid more attention to it than my family members who were clergy. And so I thought maybe these people are, these people seem to be deeply spiritual people. And I remember coming to visit the church with her. And so I opted to attend church um, there. And I remember the world was, very, their whole world was very intriguing to me. Um, they had charts everywhere. I don't know, have you ever been to a church where there are charts everywhere? They had charts everywhere hanging on, on the sanctuary walls and in classrooms. And it was like these charts mapped out the Bible. Like they, they had 
graphs and they had Venn diagrams and it was like with arrows and it was, it was like faith had been diagrammed like complex sentences in a grammar class. And one image really um, stayed in my mind. One, so I'm going to draw it for you. Um, one image really stayed in my mind from that class and they drew a train. I'm, I'm a horrible drawer of a train, but I'm going to, um, so this is the engine. And then there's a, another car. And then this is the, maybe it's a little, that's the caboose, right? <laughs> Does that look right? I don't know. So this is, and they put, um, they put facts here. And then they put faith here, and then they put feelings. So that's what, that was the image that I saw. Facts, faith, feelings. And I will never forget what that youth pastor said. Um, he said the words, uh, a train still works without an engine, or sorry, a stain, train still works with an engine, but a train can... Train still works without a caboose, but a train cannot work without an engine. And so the facts being the engine, the caboose being the feelings, he said that our faith, our faith can work when it has the facts. It can work whether or not you have feelings, but you have to have the facts to run this train. You have to know what the Bible says. You have to understand it. You have to know. You have, and that's why they had charts everywhere, that it was facts, faith, and feelings. I remember thinking that I, it was odd in many ways um, that people who urged one another to be born again and to invite Jesus into their hearts, these were those people, that they would arrange life in charts. To them the Bible taught the facts of salvation. Not feelings, but facts. And faith was a response to those facts. And feelings just came last, if at all. Feelings were not so important. I remember that phrase that a train still works without a caboose, but it does not work without the engine. You need all the facts. You don't really have to have the feelings. That's right. So this youth pastor told us, a room full of teenagers with their hormones going crazy that we were to bury our feelings. That was the message he gave us. Because feelings just come and go. And, but God's truth always remains, right? God's truth remains. God's truth is all that matters. And that is, that has nothing to do with our feelings. I stared at that little fundamentalist um, train and, and every, every fiber of my being, every fiber of my Pentecostal being, um, and every fiber of my extended Methodist being inwardly was shouting, no, feelings are important in faith. Well, that's definitely what my Pentecostal upbringing told me. I didn't, I didn't know then, but I know well now that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, his, his train was completely opposite of this. He had an opposite experience of faith from these fundamentalists. For him, faith sprang from an encounter with God in which 
He said his heart felt strangely warmed and it was from this renewed heart that faith came and then his whole vision for life changed. Feelings were important to him. In effect, the facts of existence, the facts of God, were apprehended with this emotional awareness for him, this spiritual sense that could interpret life and purpose through this new lens of love that he had never had before. And this youth pastor had completely reversed the Methodist train. But when I looked around the room, everyone seemed to be nodding along. And so I kept my mouth shut, I remember, and I just kind of nodded in agreement. And so um, I said nothing and went along, and maybe, I have com maybe I've completely misunderstood faith all along. Maybe I've misunderstood John Wesley. Certainly those Bible Christians might know better than I do. Um, but the more that I spent time with them, the more I learned that they believed, they actually did believe in feelings, but they believed only in certain emotions. Only certain emotions were acceptable to have, and some feelings were downright dangerous to have. Happiness, submission, pleasant agreement, assurance, conviction even, were all welcome in that place. Good feelings proved that you were faithful to following God's truth. Negative feelings were like warning lights that your faith train was going off the tracks or that Satan had taken the wheel. And emotions needed to be held in careful check to the facts of the Bible. That was, that was Grace Bible. But you know, what's ironic, which is where it gets to us, what's ironic, although my fundamentalist friends had clearly defined feelings as less than, not important to facts and knowing, which was counter to John Wesley completely. What's ironic is that my experience of churches like ours, of mainline, white, generally more so white than anything else, Protestant American churches, your Lutherans and your Methodists and your Episcopalians and your Catholics, while not Protestant, are largely religious cultures of emotional constraint. Why? We Methodists like to speak of Wesley's strangely warmed hearts as a part of our history, but our Methodist churches generally leave us <laughs> and leave us feeling kind of cold. And they live into that snarky snarky reputation as God's frozen chosen. I've never heard those words before. That style of Protestantism, which is about decorum and about orderliness and about social clubs. Have you ever thought about this really? Like it, it doesn't compute. Why is it that for predominantly for, for predominantly white churches in America, expressive faith has been mostly left to Pentecostals. Feeling God. Feeling God has been left to Pentecostals. But in those communities, emotions are also theologically policed, right? You've got to, your emotions have to be a particular set of good emotions and not bad emotions. We know it mostly as 
Um, for us, in, these sets, in this circumstance of church here, we know it mostly as appreciation during announcements or thank you notes sent or an appreciation dinner that we're going to host this week. We're singing of hymns, but we do not here know it as a feeling. And, and we think we do, but we are so unaffected emotionally by God. Why is that? Why is it? Most white churches seem to teach gratitude as this transaction, a quid pro quo kind of faith. God loves you, and so you must love God. And if you don't love God, God sends you somewhere else. This is, this is such an inadequate view of gratitude. And this is how salvation just becomes one more transaction, right? Salvation becomes one more transaction in this closed cycle of gratitude. If God did this for me, I must do this for God then. Where is the awe? Where is the mystery? Where is that mystic sense that God is God and I am here and I feel God? I sense God. It's most of the time missing in places like this. I think y'all are better at it than most folks. Some years back when I was working at a church that had an actual office, um, I was, yeah, I don't have a place where people can do this now, but I had office hours at this point in time where someone could just stop in and visit me. And this, this guy came, this man I hardly knew, um, who all I knew about him was that he was an executive at a corporation um, down the road. He stopped into my office and he was fidgeting and anxious and kind of excited and a little bit bubbling over, but also looked very, very terrified to be with me. Um, and after a couple of minutes of small talk, I realized that was not why he was, he was there at all. Uh, and he, he said, he finally broke the ice and said, I've got to, I've got to tell you today, uh, because I don't have anyone else to tell. I, I want to be a Christian. And honestly, in my world, that's like, that's like saying I'm crazy. But last night, this feeling overcame me that I could not shake. And I, I was just overwhelmed by the fact that I was me and that I knew I was not alone. And in the early hours of the morning, I needed to just let it all out. And so I got an old cassette recorder and I just made this tape for you. And it says, it says what I want to say out loud about my life and about what God has done in my life and what I'm feeling and I want to leave it with you because there's no other person I can give it to um, but this is me right now and of course there were probably years of wrestling this probably wasn't an um, instantaneous thing for him uh, we know it's not it didn't just happen all at once in one night but what I heard on that tape when I listened to it, after it took me some while to find a thing that could actually play it. Um, but what I heard was nothing short of this heart strangely, bizarrely, out of this world warmed experience, launching him into a whole new way of seeing his life and of experiencing love. And it was remarkable to hear, and it almost couldn't be explained. He couldn't. The sheer gratitude that just resonated from the recording as it, he just poured his whole life out. And yet he was still hiding 
behind a tape recorder. And the only person he thought would understand his pastor as his professional life remained incongruent with his newfound feelings. Looking back, I think that moment all those years ago was the closest I've ever come to meeting Bartimaeus, who we meet today in our story. Short, short as this story is, Bartimaeus um, is one of the most significant characters in the Gospels. Mark Gospel is divided into two sections, two halves. The first half is set in Galilee. Jesus heals people and calls his disciples, and in between that he teaches people to, and often he teaches in parables. That's the part you know and gets in trouble with the authorities a little bit. And in the second half, the scene shifts to Jerusalem. And there Jesus faces controversy, and his identity is disclosed, and he's led to crucifixion. These two halves of Mark. And the story of Bartimaeus is the climax of the first half of the story. To understand it, you need to go back to the parable of the sower and earlier in Mark 4. Um, you'll remember that Jesus talks that there are different kinds of people, different kinds of, um, of roads, um, and, and different kinds of earth. And he talks about it in the path, the rocky ground, the thistles, and the good soil. And the first half of Mark's gospel illustrates all of these various kinds of discipleship or lack thereof. Some seeds fall on the path. This refers to the authorities in Mark's gospel that reject Jesus outright, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then some seeds fall on the stony ground. And this refers to the disciples, especially Peter and James and John, who accept the word immediately, but wither in the face of temptation and persecution and get anxious and fearful and reject Jesus at moments. Some seeds fall among the thorns. These include King Herod, who takes to Jesus, but in this mired in a network of like unsavory commitments, he is taking Jesus on a whole other path. And then there's the good soil. And this refers to those who hear and accept the word and bear fruit in abundance in their lives. And there aren't many people in Mark's gospel who live into this good soil life, but Bartimaeus is certainly one of them. Mark's gospel tells a story in which those who are the professional holy people, those who have the most exposure to Jesus and his teachings, those who have the most money and status, all fall away and are all supplanted by this solitary, blind, beggar who alone does exactly what Jesus wants and it says here that what Jesus wants is for him to follow Jesus on the way and on this way as Mark puts it the first become last and the last become first the blind beggar Bartimaeus becomes first in this story like inverting the train where the caboose now becomes the engine of this train and at the heart of Bartimaeus's story lies his cloak and the cloak is the one thing that he has the one thing it's his source of protection from dust and wind and rain and cold and it's his source of income like a, a street ma ma a musicians open guitar case and this is this is the crisis in the story Bartimaeus has one thing he wants, 
and he has only one thing he owns. He has a cloak, and he wants to see. How much does he want to see enough to part with his cloak, maybe? Absolutely. He parts with the one thing he has in order to receive the one thing that really matters to him. And Jesus stands still as if to emphasize the, the, the timelessness of this moment and asks Bartimaeus this penetrating question, do you, what do you want me to, what do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? And Bartimaeus has no hesitation. He knows exactly what to say. And at first glance, it seems that this is just another example of transactional salvation. If he gives up the cloak, he'll be saved. But Jesus never asks for the cloak. He gives it up, but he never is asked for it. Jesus merely says, take heart, get on your feet, and call out to me. And Bartimaeus, heartwarmed and emotionally overwhelmed, filled with awe and gratitude, just willingly casts aside the one thing for God's one thing. Not because he was asked to do it, but because it just flowed out of this, this gratitude, this awe he had. From the moment he meets Jesus, we see his awe. And the rest of the first half of Mark gives us plenty of examples of people who, unlike Bartimaeus, can't bring themselves to shed their cloak, but are still beckoned into this life of gratitude before God. People like us. How fervently people like us, we, organize our lives in order to never have to be in Bartimaeus' position, right? Isn't this what our accumulation of, of wealth and possessions is all about? Wealth and possessions are the best and most resilient kind of cloak we could have. They protect us from the vulnerability of facing personal and medical and career and social disaster. They, the trouble is that the more we possess, the more our possessions begin to possess us and managing money and then managing property now. And then managing our public image is time consuming to the point of becoming overwhelming in and of itself. And we become like Michelin man, almost surrounded by layers of insulation we put around ourselves. And the idea of allowing God to move into unexplainable gratitude within us to bring us to our feet or to our knees in awe and wonder and depth, depth of feeling and immense gratitude seems almost impossible when we are so insulated by all we have. But wealth and possessions are, are by no means the only cloak we have, right? As we see in James and John, status is just as compelling. Status is the way of trying to assure ourselves we have everyone's admiration around us so that we can convince ourselves we don't actually need their real love unconditionally if we were vulnerable. That's what, that's what the chief executive who paid me that visit, that surprise visit, cassette tape in hand, was struggling with. He was coming to terms with the reality that this overwhelming sense of awe he was feeling, this emotional response to God he was feeling, was going to cause him to lose people's admiration of him. 
and also need people's love in a way he never had to need people's love before. He'd have to ask something of them that felt like too much. And like the man letting it all out but hiding behind his cassette tape still, that cloak for him, or Bartimaeus flinging cloak aside passionately and emotionally and, and pleadingly yelling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is always still calling us to our feet, calling us to take heart, beckoning us to come. For Jesus, faith is always a matter of the heart. Jesus does not use this lightly here. Jesus does not ask him to recite verses, does not need him to prove. He has any knowledge of the Torah. Jesus says, take heart. This has always been a thing of the heart, an emotion that should guide our train, not bring up the rear of our train, but should be guiding it from the very beginning, some unbelievable experience of God we have had. This feeling, not because of anything God has particularly done, but just this absolute sense of awe that we are here and God is God, Religious people of all kinds have cloaks. For some are like Grace Bible Church, right? For some, the cloak has been trying for so long, so hard, to be so certain about what the Bible says, about what life of faith looks like. And, and so when Jesus asks somebody like that, what do you want me to do for you? They answer, well, I sure hope you're going to meet up to my very precise expectations of who you are now, now that I've done all these charts. Just imagine if Jesus turns out to be less correct than us. <laughs> For other religious folks, the cloak is this sense of self-righteousness. That feel the feelings they only want to feel, these very positive feelings, and, and this way of warding off all the bad feelings. But here's the cloak I think is uniquely ours. Those are, that's not our cloak here. It's the cloak of decorum and orderliness and having our lives together, where Christian faith is a call to do maybe something good or be kind. But we spend a great deal of our lifetime, a great deal of our lifetime giving verbal assent and serving a great deal and giving our money bi-weekly or monthly contribution, and we might feel something when we're moved maybe at a wedding by a particular moving homily, or we might cry at a funeral. But otherwise, our faith just functions like this unobtrusive insurance policy. Lifting our anxiety about the future when we want it to, and making it easier for us to plan for the unknown when we want it to. We live in this corporate world and we're used to delegating the complex parts of our lives to professionals. And so we just make the church our professional spiritual advisor. That's what it is. It fills one of those spots for us. But we aren't often moved by God's grace and goodness in our decorum and in our orderliness and in our liturgy. We don't give way to the immense emotion and passion of gratitude, just sheer gratitude, just because you are and God is. If we remotely recognize ourselves in any of these descriptions, 
or if family or nation or anything else fills our cloak, as that could also very well be, the story of Bartimaeus is saying one simple thing for us today. It's time to shed the cloak. Making such a cloak for ourselves amid the uncertainty of life makes complete sense. It does. Keeping such a cloak as our source of security is a very common thing for us to do. And if we truly want to meet Jesus face to face, if we long to, to leap up in delight and joy like Bartimaeus, to have our hearts warmed by God, to know what people are even talking about when they say they feel God's presence because we've put our trust in no one and nothing but Jesus, then we've got to shed that cloak, whatever that cloak is. I want you to take a second, just take a second, and visualize this with me. Take a second and imagine Jesus calling you from the other side of a fast-flowing river. Maybe even close your eyes right now. It's fine. You don't need to look at me. Imagine Jesus calling you from the other side of a fast-flowing river, and you're wearing, you're wearing a cloak. Your precious, carefully customized cloak. And he's calling you by name, and you start to cross the river, start to cross through the water, and still wearing the cloak, you go deeper, and you go deeper, and the cloak is getting heavier, and the cloak is getting heavier, and anyone watching can see that if you don't shed the cloak, you may not make it to the other side. I wonder where you are today. I wonder if it's time for you to shed the cloak, and perhaps, perhaps you're not there yet. Maybe imagine yourself sitting down with a cassette recorder and just downloading your wrestling with God. All the bad feelings and all the good feelings, perhaps that's where you are today. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus simply says, let me see again. Think about what these words really mean. Bartimaeus is saying to Jesus, I want you to make me feel fully alive. I want, I want to be moved and changed by you. I want to become only what you can make me. I want to open my eyes and enter a whole new reality, like a blind man opening his eyes to see the world for the first time, or a corporate exec downloading his gratitude onto a cassette tape. Let me into that world, God. Please, Jesus. Because here's the beautiful thing about this God. God shed God's cloak for you. When Jesus became naked among us in a manger in Bethlehem, and when he hung naked before us on a cross outside Jerusalem, he shed his cloak because he wanted so desperately to stand before us. And that's the train we're on. That's the train I want to be on board. Where I don't have to leave my feelings at the door. But that God receives our bad feelings and our good feelings. God forbid we get angry with God. The good and the bad and the ones I don't even know how to express yet. Because gratitude 
at the root is gratia, and it's the exact same root of the word grace. And so if we understand gratitude any other way besides this beautiful free gift we are to stand in awe of, we've got it wrong. It's somehow got mixed into our transactional way of seeing the world, of sending thank you notes. Would you pray with me? For some of us, God, this is the hard one out of the four, the really hard one. We are not feelers. Um, we don't really know what it means to when someone says they they were moved by God's presence or um, we engage you with our head and we kind of like knowing what we need to do to get your love or to be faithful quite frankly some of us here are really wishing we had charts on our walls at Island Creek it would make it so much easier. But all of those big miraculous moments, God, that the ones we speak about at this table, the ones we speak of in the Apostles' Creed when we say it together, all of those moments, every single one of them can't be explained on a chart. It's, it's standing in awe of this story that is grace and just downloading how that makes us feel. What does it do for us to know you are that God? Forgive us, God, for all the ways we try to push those feelings to the side, whatever they are. Maybe we have thought that um, people will think less of us, or we have our own opinions of people who are super emotional about their faith. Um, we come with baggage and history and all of that. And But God, forgive us that we here, um, your people who gather and, and care to, to, to bask in your wonder, we have not created a space where people can feel you without having to go to some emotionally manipulative place. This should be the place. Good and bad feelings collide. And so, God, we pray that you would make our church that. Our church would be a place where whatever you're feeling, you can, you can come in and download it, like on a cassette tape. Whether it's on the back row or it's or it's raising your hands, or it's, it's letting the tears flow when they need to. God, we ask that you would make our church a place where that kind of gratitude flows, where we can stand in awe of you. And we pray together that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.